welcome to Interfish Podcast number four, where we discuss some of the most compelling and controversial stories from around the seafood sector. I'm editorial director Drew Cherry, and I'm joined today by editor Lisey Fisher and reporter Lola Navarro. Hi, Lola. Hi, Lisey. Hello. Hi, Drew. All right. So, Lola, uh, we're going to start with you because we're going to be discussing uh, not only some of the recent stories, but some of the recent uh, travels that we've been having. And you recently returned from a trip to Turkey where Mm -hmm. some of the larger companies toured you around and you saw some of the farming operations. So I want to just get a little bit of your impressions of what's happening there in that country um, and kind of how fast they're growing. There were some pretty impressive numbers about um, kind of how those companies are developing. Yeah, I went to Turkey about a month ago and visited a lot of farms. I thought it was going to be just about bream and bass, but um, no, it turned out they have a lot of aquaculture there. They produce more than 240,000 metric tons of farm fish. And yeah, I was quite impressed because I was uh, expecting that it wasn't going to be that huge. And they are growing massively every year. The big companies are exporting to Europe and to the United States and Middle East now. And yeah, it seems like it's a growing industry. Well, my impression was that they were struggling a bit with import duties into the European Union. And they also have to compete with countries like Greece and Greece and Spain, who are also the, the largest bass and bream producers. So that's the main challenge. And that's what I thought was going to be a bit difficult to get over. I thought one of the most impressive companies was Killage. Uh, they discussed their IPO plans and they were also uh, inaugurating a new uh, fish meal plant or fish feed plant, correct? Yes, they have a new fish feed plan and yeah, they're opting for an IPO uh, later this year, I think. it's Yeah, they have some really, really, really impressive growing plans. They're also farming tuna, bluefin tuna in Turkey. And they've just opened um, new facilities in Central America, in the Dominican Republic. That was one of the most successful um, companies, I will say. I mean, do you think that it's realistic that they can IPO and that they'll attract investor interest just from your discussions with management and looking at the operations? I will think so. I will think so. For what they, for what they said, they already have a lot of interest from investors in Norway, and they were talking about uh, salmon farmers being in touch with them from Norway. So, I mean, for what they said, it's it's an ambitious plan, but it's possible. Well, I visited um, Turkey last year, did the same trip as Lola did um, this year. And um, the thing about Kilic is um, that what I think makes them interesting is that they just cover so many bases. Uh, you already mentioned, Lola, that, you know, they do not only farm bison and bream, they have other species, they have fish meat plants. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what makes them interesting, actually, to investors. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, too, um, some of these newer species that you, you hit on a couple of them while you were there. Um Lola, so are there other new emerging species that you see could kind of be the next stars in the industry? The thing is the mm, conditions, the weather conditions in that in that part uh, are not very good for certain species. They were talking about turbot and they were they were saying that they needed to invest or to start growing other species, but actually no one there's doing anything else because the conditions are good for bass and bream. 
they're good for tilapia, although there are some struggles in that in that area. And bluefin farming uh, is only done from wild catch. So, so far they're doing those species. They want to try new ones, but they're not sure the conditions are going to be uh, good for them. So I'm not sure if if the industry is, is going to expand uh, to other species. I think it's going to grow in the sense that it's going to go to different markets and, and yeah, that they can reach um, other countries within four hours with fresh cargo. So I think it's going to grow in the sense of opening markets, but not, but not diversifying species or, or adding new species. I don't think so. All right. So, Lola, you also attended a, a Guardian and Seafish panel uh, last week on slavery. Um, <laughs> and, you know, this obviously slavery, the, the issue of, of slavery and seafood has is, is been something that's um, plagued the industry for a long time. But it was really the Guardian and the Associated Press that highlighted it to kind of the broader consumer and so I'm curious what some of the message was from that panel and if you've got a sense if there's anything new that Seafish is going to bring to the table in terms of addressing the issue. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the panel discussion was on, on the role that companies can play in fighting uh, slavery at sea. And yeah, well, there were very, very interesting opinions. They were all agreeing that... Um, there needs to be collaboration, but I think Seafish is gonna is actually calling uh, companies to to act on it because it is an issue of people not wanting to be responsible for it. So, on this, uh, on, uh, from a customer's perspective, uh, it's thought that it's companies who should be dealing with it, and then companies think that it should be. Uh, the supply chain and then supply chain think that it's companies, so no one, no one wants to really take responsibility or be accountable for, for the use of slavery at sea. And what is what was brought up the other day was the need of the industry to actually, uh, to actually, come forward and say yes, we are the ones who need to act against it, to not put profit over human lives to work uh, against the issue without regretting that the profit is probably going to go down because at the end of the day, well, they were saying that these are human lives and we need to re-educate uh, societies and that needs to come from companies and we need to stop uh, blaming someone else. Yeah. I mean, Lisa, you've covered this for a while as well, stretching back for a few years. Do you feel like there's been forward progress since the Guardian story first broke and the Associated Press story first broke? Um, yeah, I think so, definitely. I mean, um, these reports in the mainstream media, I think, have brought the issues issue to the public and obviously companies and the industry need to take steps on it. Um, so I think there has been progress, maybe motivated by, by the wrong reasons, but, you know, any progress in this issue has, is, is good progress. So, yeah. We've been seeing companies step up and yeah, develop plans on how to tackle the issue. So yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think to your point, Lola, um, to, to me, one of the missing things in, in the debate is the role that uh, that retailers and food service companies kind of play, and in particular, major retailers, because I do think, and Lisa, you wrote about this in a column last week, but I do think that 
there has to be some education to the consumer. Um, and this applies to broader food uh, food supplies in general. But I think there has to be some understanding that to get food at the cost that people pay and expect, um, a lot of times you're going to put pressure on a supply chain that's going to leave room for this kind of abuse. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's a larger problem. There's no kind of, uh, easy solution for it, but I think that the price of, of, uh, the price that consumers are paying for their seafood, uh, you're kind of building in some room for there to be problems in the chain. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. It's uh, consumers don't want to pay more, and and they only care about the the price on the label. They don't look anything beyond that. Sometimes they don't stop to think why the prices are so high. And yeah, this is this is one of the biggest problems. There should be more education towards this. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know, Lisi, when you uh, you were looking at MSC data when you uh, when you wrote your column, and it was it was a survey of German consumers, right? And what did that what did that essentially find? And do you think that's those statistics would actually bear out in how people shop? I looked at that uh, study uh, that was conducted for the MSC in Germany. And um, I think three out of five consumers said they would pay 18% more for sustainable fish. That means there's actually, you know, that's actually quite a big number. Um, so... Um, on the other hand, we also know that not everyone has the, the buying power to, to spend more on food and so on. But I think that leaves room for growth. And I mean, 18% is a lot of money that could go into to, that could go to fishermen, that could go into the supply chain, that could go to retailers, you know. So I think there's room for growth, definitely. So let's shift then, staying on that same idea of consumers not being willing to pay uh, for seafood because uh, a story that you produced last week was on a new campaign from discount uh, retailer Lidl. Can you tell us a little bit about what uh, they're trying to to do and what that's meaning in the German consumer landscape? Um, yeah, sure. Um, so Lidl started a new campaign at the beginning of September, so this month, um, giving basically um, just giving uh, consumers the choice between uh, branded products and their own private private label products. Um, the campaign is called "Du hast die Wahl," which can be translated to um, "It's your own choice," and they literally just put pictures of the two products next to each other with the price suggesting, you know, it's the same quality, but we offer the cheaper price. And uh, yeah, it's quite interesting because actually in Germany, even though the discounters here have always said we have offered the same products at a cheaper price, but this is kind of the first time that they've launched such an aggressive campaign. Yeah, it's quite in interesting. I mean, I spoke to, um, or we spoke to a couple of people in the industry and their concerns were that it might confuse consumers. It might suggest that it is actually the same quality. 
um, even though it might be not. So, um, and that's debatable, yeah. right? I mean, that's that's something exactly. that people argue about a lot is the difference in quality and whether there is a difference in quality. But exactly, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think it's uh, it's kind of it's either coincidental or it's not. It's hard to know. Um, that Americans have really now aggressively begun a campaign in the German market to try to differentiate between single frozen Pollock and twice frozen Pollock. The Genuine Alaska Pollock Producers Group has taken to social media and recruited some food bloggers to help them with this. I mean, I don't know if that's going to be successful or not, um, because it is a product where the people that are purchasing it tend to be kind of more frugal shoppers. Or if you're making a purchase of fish fingers for dinner, maybe maybe price far outweighs your concerns about uh, where product is manufactured. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. But then, I don't know. Um, I'm obviously a consumer and I'm still of the opinion that I should get all the information there is on a product. So, um, for instance, my concern was like, I spoke to um, Mr. Matthias Keller from the German Fish Association about it. And he told me um, the processor doesn't have to write um, on the package itself where the fish is processed, actually. So I could be buying little fish fingers and think, okay, they've been processed in Germany, um, even though they might have gone through China. Who knows? They might be double frozen. There's no information on it. Uh, so there's maybe a misperception about German consumers that they're, because Aldi and Lidl uh, originate from there, I think there's a perception that that generally German consumers are looking for the cheapest possible price and really not paying attention, perhaps, to that that quality. Um, I but I don't know. Wrong. I think that's actually wrong. I um, I think the German market, uh, the German consumer, is actually very conscious about about um, what's going on with fishing practices and so on. So I think um, the consumers here are very informed about overfishing, about, for instance, you know what happens to um, to the fish before it actually goes to the shelf. That's why it's quite surprising that information doesn't have to be shared. So um, yes, they look out for good offers for them, but um, they also look out for sustainability. So that's quite important for them. Well, and well. I guess it's, yeah, and I guess it's uh, whatever Lidl and Aldi are, are doing, you know, it's not exclusive to Germany. And we're see, we see from Nielsen yeah. statistics that, uh, that Seafish puts out that Aldi and Lidl continue to gain market share over other retailers in, in almost all seafood categories. I mean, it just sort of marches up and marches up. And it, it's it's small percentages uh, compared to, say, what Sainsbury's and, and Tesco have in market share as some of the main species. But clearly it's growing. And just yesterday, um, I believe it was Lidl, uh, that launched a big push into uh, into California. Obviously, they're very bullish on their prospects, and you know, feel very good about uh, about the notion that consumers around the world will will be willing to uh, to to pay less for products that they consider to be of the of the same or close value. So that's our time for this week. Thanks, Lisi and Lola, for joining the podcast. And thanks to Kim Tran, as always, for production help. Remember that you can find more news, commentary, and insight on intrafish.com every day. And you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media outlets as well. 
Thanks for listening.